The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, I'm Melinda Hamelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food health, and agriculture, and I'm delighted today to welcome Dr. Keith Ingram. He is on faculty with the University of Florida in Gainesville and the coordinator of the Southeast Climate Consortium, and I wanted to bring Dr. Ingram here today because I think that there's a lot of debate about climate and weather and how our food system relates to climate change, and then we have disasters, and those disasters, I think, sort of wake us up a little bit. So we had Katrina, we had a severe drought in the Midwest and the Southeast, and then Sandy hit. And so I was reminded that climate and the food system are very important. Dr. Ingram has a background in agronomy. He is familiar with the peanut crop being in the Southeast, and also how climate affects crop production. So Dr. Ingram, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. So tell me something. You have a degree in agronomy a Ph.D. in agronomy, in fact, from the University of Florida. What is agronomy? Agronomy is the science of managing crops that we eat, as well as the ones that we feed animals, livestock, as well as the ones that we grow to clothe ourselves, like cotton. Most farmers understand weather, but when we're doing food production and thinking about food production for the future, How often is the conversation geared towards climate, global warming, climate change? Well, farmers don't really distinguish between weather and climate very much, and I don't think many people do. Uh, Most people, when they hear climate, automatically think of climate change, but climate is much more than that. The true definition is that the weather is what's happening right now, and the weather forecast is typically somewhere plus or minus one week. Those are weather events. Climate events are much longer in scope. We, we look at them as as um, 30-year averages, typically, that a climatologist will look at. But uh, some of the climatologists look forward and backwards hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And our climate has changed. It will always change. What's interesting right now is that we have a situation where we have climate effects that people are causing that are related to greenhouse gases or to land use changes. And some people argue that that doesn't really happen, but clearly uh, the the theory is pretty strong, and I think we are having impacts on our our climate systems. They're not easy to detect. And I work with a lot of climatologists who are very adamant that we need to rely on the data and not try to just scare people. On the other hand, as we look further into the future, the models that look out 100 years, tend to have some fairly scary projections for us. Mm -hmm. I had heard that in addition to the rising oceans, there will also be a reduction in the amount of food that we will be able to produce because of the climatic changes. Have you heard that as well? Well, one of the, the challenges that we have with global changes is that the change that people recognize is local, and each location is going to be somewhat different. There will be some areas that actually have increases in food production. I'm thinking of Canada, 
north of, northern parts of the U.S., there's a good probability that their productivity will increase. There are other areas where productivity is likely to decrease, and those would include a lot of the tropical areas, areas that are right now uh, likely to become drier, more desert-like. So not, not everybody is, is going to suffer from climate change. Some people will actually benefit. And it's really difficult to get a, a full picture of, of how the total food production system will change because uh, human behavior is going to change a lot. We'll be developing new technologies to try to cope with changes of climate. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that, that's unlikely to change that, that is really as important as climate is, is population. Population is going to be 9 billion by the year 2050. So not only do we have to maintain our food production levels, we need to increase them in order to meet the needs of a growing population, which is going to be a major challenge. Mm-hmm. I've heard that recommendation disputed to some extent because of the amount of waste that we have. And I think whenever there is a climatic disaster and we, we really see what kind of waste, let's say there's a flood and, we, and a farmer loses his crop, for example, because of that, or there's a drought and the farm loses its crop. I don't know if that's considered waste, but in addition to the food that is lost due to disease or that's lost due to simply not consuming it or throwing it away, there's also the loss due to just natural events. Right. So there are a lot of different losses from the system. We we focus on natural events here because in the U.S. we tend to control a lot of the farm and post-harvest related losses. What we don't control in the U.S. are a lot of the food processing losses. Right. We, We lose a lot in terms of what actually gets home and then gets thrown away, or you go to a restaurant and food doesn't get eaten, it gets thrown away, or it goes to the grocery store and it doesn't get purchased and it gets thrown away. Mm-hmm. That's the major loss in the U.S. That's not true in the rest of the world. The rest of the world, there are a lot more losses that occur in storage, in transit, because of shipping problems and shipping times. If a truck gets delayed somewhere along the way, it's you know the whole crop can be lost. So... In different areas, we have different problems, but in the U.S., it's mainly in the, at the processing end where we have a lot of losses. Mm-hmm. Of course, when we have natural calamities, we can also have losses in the fields, but uh, there's not much we can do about those losses most of the time. Right. You know, it was interesting. I was looking at the Southeast Climate Consortium objectives, and I was looking at some of the research programs that have taken place, and one of them that I thought was so interesting was how you had helped a farmer collect water that was abundant during the winter time, store that, and then use it during the warmer, hotter, drier months, rather than what the farmer had been doing was using, was it, I think it was creek water, and using it during the summer months when it really wasn't the best time. So it was water management based on changes in climate. Well, yeah, water resources are highly dynamic in the southeast. We tend to have a lot of heavy rains during the winter months, fall and winter, but our crop growing season is during the spring and summer. Mm-hmm. So when we need the water for our crops, we tend not to have as much rainfall. And in southern Georgia, they attack the problem by having big pumps and irrigation systems, but they can't do that throughout the southeast. So what's, what they're doing in Alabama is building reservoirs 
And what they do is they fill the reservoirs with water from the, the swollen streams and creeks during the winter months, and then they use that to irrigate their crops during the spring and summer when the crops need them and when there's not too much water in the spring. So what it does is to, to have protection on both ends. We don't have to use the water from the spring during the summer and spring months during the crop production season. So those, those rivers maintain their natural flows. We, we don't tap that water out. It gets and it keeps those natural ecosystems going during the, the spring and summer. But we've stored water, the excess water during the winter that we can use then to grow our crops. Mm-hmm. Dr. Ingram, you are based in Florida, and I wonder if you could describe what's been going on from a climate change perspective with regard to ocean levels rising and how that is affecting water access as well as crop production in the Sunshine State. Yes, there's already observable change in sea level here. And it, it's pretty ex- interesting. And it's exciting and scary because we see in a lot of communities salt water already coming into their well fields. So we have salt water intrusion. We have problems when there are storms. We don't, uh, the, the ditches that have been dug to drain off the excess water no longer work as efficiently. And there are floods that occur that never occurred before. So we have areas in low-lying areas that, that uh, end up flooding when it's a high tide or when there's a heavy rain or people are, are uh, seeing the impacts already of sea level rise. And what's interesting is that some people may doubt climate change or that humans are causing climate change, but they do not doubt sea level rise when they live along the coastlines. Mm-hmm. Sea level rose about eight inches over the 1900s. And we expect it to rise uh, much more than that during the, the uh, 2000s. And people are, are very concerned along the coastlines. Now, how does that affect agriculture? The saltwater intrusion is not really affecting crops so much as uh, municipal areas because most of the people live around the coastlines. Now, what happens in the to agriculture is that there is more competition for water. Agriculture is a big water user. We use water for irrigation. And as the water resources along the coasts become unusable, then there's going to be more competition for the water that agriculture is using that would then be diverted to municipal water use. Mm-hmm. A lot of issues about moving water around the state in order to meet the needs of various population areas. Mm-hmm. And a lot of controversy, a lot of conflict is growing on that. So it, it's going to be a, a challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they say water is going to be the next oil in terms of what we're going to be fighting over. And Florida is such an interesting state because it's densely populated. And I wonder about resource utilization and the ability for Florida citizens to largely feed themselves and the industries, the crops that we really depend on nationally coming from Florida, say the tomato crops down in Immokalee, for example. I visited those fields as well as the citrus industry, how are those particular crops being affected? Well, it's hard to say. What, you mentioned the citrus industry. Something very interesting has happened over the last 50 years, 50, 60 years in the citrus industry, and that is that the citrus belt used to go all the way up into South Carolina. Hmm. And strong freeze events have pushed it back further and further south. And right now, the the northern limit of the the citrus belt is somewhere near the middle of Florida, somewhere around uh, Ocala or a little bit south of Ocala, south of the the Turnpike, uh, which cuts the peninsula across pretty much in half. Mm -hmm. 
Now, that may change. We, we may see the citrus growing area move northward if, if we have warming. But what we don't know is whether we're going to still have those strong freeze events which would prevent it. So just because we might have warming on average, that doesn't mean we're not going to have freezes in the future. And that's, that's really the big question mark right now. The other big question mark that we have in terms of Florida agriculture, which you know, includes sugarcane and a lot of ornamental plants and a lot of vegetables. In the north, we also grow a lot of the, the traditional crops. We have a lot of cattle and livestock. Mm-hmm. But what we don't know is gonna, what's going to happen with the pests. Right. We, find, we expect that pests are likely to be coming back that we used to think we had gotten rid of or new pests will be coming in. When it's not an agricultural pest, but there's a mosquito that's come into South Florida, which hadn't been here for decades, which is the, the uh, mosquito that carries dengue fever. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're looking at both human health impacts as well as agricultural impacts of climate changes. Well, it's not, yeah, it's a, it's a very complicated situation. Everything's connected, but um, Do you... we're hopeful and we're, we're looking for solutions. Yeah. Do you have public health professionals on your consortium? We don't, but we have another center here on the UF campus, which is the Center for Emerging Pathogens or Emerging Pathogens Pathogens Institute. And I also work uh, in collaboration with a group up at the uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. They are looking at a lot of the public health impacts of climate, and we work with them on several projects, including one that it's kind of unusual. It's uh, the drought impacts on health. Yeah. And people tend not to think of drought having a, a health impact, but it has it in several ways. One is that associated with drought are also high temperatures, and people are very susceptible to high temperatures. Right. Um, in, in Europe last year, they had, I don't know how many thousands of people died because of the heat wave, which was associated with a drought. But we also have a lot of psychological factors that, that, that weigh during drought. The numbers of farmers and people in agribusiness that commit suicide during drought skyrockets. Mm. Uh, one, one of the things that we're very fortunate about right now, we have, we're in the second year of a drought, which has really affected the region, but fortunately has not badly affected agriculture. The agriculture in the drought-prone areas has, has weathered it pretty well, mm. and uh, we, we haven't seen a lot of those those psychological impacts of drought on, on human health. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Keith Ingram. He holds a Ph.D. in agronomy with a minor in botany from the University of Florida. He has a master's in plant sciences from the University of California, and he is also currently coordinating the Southeast Climate Consortium, and we're talking about how climate impacts crops, food, public health, water, Everything's connected, as you mentioned earlier, Dr. Ingram. I wonder, as our listeners probably do, you know, what can we do? There's this, sometimes this overwhelming feeling of helplessness, and yet there's also this idea that we need all hands on deck right now. What are some of the things that you talk about in your consortium about what can we ask the public to do to abate some of the changes that we've witnessed or I don't know if we can reverse the climate changes, but maybe we can slow them down and uh, keep keep normal closer to what we know. Well, I think there are two approaches to the problem. One is that we need to, to try to uh, mitigate 
the human-caused climate change that would perhaps be harmful. And we also need to be able to adapt if we can't change it. So we, we look at both. Mm-hmm. And a, a lot of the people that we work with, we work with a lot of uh, farmers and decision makers in other areas, they feel a lot more comfortable talking about adaptation measures. Mm-hmm. And we feel like it's important to try to provide them information on that. So we look at new technologies, agricultural technologies, crop production systems, and ways that they can adapt, not just to future climate change, but to climate variation right now. Because climate variability now is, is already a stress in many areas. And if farmers can adapt to the climate variation that we have right now, we're confident that they will be more able to adapt climate changes that might occur in the future. Now, on the issue of mitigation, that's really not our area of expertise, but I think it's just common sense. We know that if CO2 is a greenhouse gas, which it is, and it has the capacity of warming the planet, which it does, then we need to try to figure out ways of mitigating that. And one of the things that we do is to work with farmers to find technologies that help them sequester more carbon in the soils. Now, there's a technology in the Midwest that's very widely adopted called conservation tillage. Mm -hmm. Very useful. It works. Mm -hmm. It does help to sequester carbon. So every ton of carbon that agriculture takes out of the soil counteracts a ton that we might uh, emit into the air. Uh, Every ton that they store in the soil is one that uh, counteracts a ton that's been emitted into the air. There are other technologies that we're looking at. There is a researcher in North Florida who's developed a production system called the sod-based rotation. This is David Wright and his crew. They're based in Mariana, and they um, find that by rotating a pasture with row crops in a four-year cycle, they're able to increase the organic matter, which both sequesters carbon, improves the water-holding capacity of the soil, which then provides greater yields, but it also improves the nutritional quality of the soil for crops so that they don't need as much fertilizers. Mm-hmm. So it's a very interesting system and one that looks very, very promising. And we're trying to figure out how to spread that and adapt that system to other areas in the region. Yeah, we're, we're looking at a full range of, of, of approaches that people can use that will both adapt to climate change and help mitigate climate change. But frankly, one of the, the problems that we have is most farmers are not very convinced that there is climate change. So we have to kind of come at it sideways. Hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. Well, I know I visited the Rodale Farm in Pennsylvania several times, and I've read their 30-year trial report, and they have a, a heavy emphasis on climate change and the ability of organic farming methods to sequester carbon, and I think that is truly exciting, not only you know with, with a lot of these green manures and cover crops and not tilling, but also this idea that if you're not putting as much nitrogen down on the soil, that's a that's a pretty heavily fossil fuel-based process to create this synthetic nitrogen. Am I correct on that? That's true. So every bit of fertilizer that you can avoid putting on because you have a more well-balanced soil is that much less oil that we would spend to produce the produce and distribute that nitrogen for for agricultural production. Mm -hmm. 
So what are you working on now with the Climate Consortium that you find to be really exciting? Wow, so many things. We're uh, just finishing up a project with the uh, a regional project. This is much bigger than the Southeast Climate Consortium. It includes probably 15 different federal and state agencies. We had over 100 authors developing a technical report for the National Climate Assessment. And that technical report was done, and we're now writing a book, which is uh, hopefully going to be out before the end of the year, which will talk about how we expect climate to change over the, uh, the next 50 to 100 years, how that's going to affect various sectors, including energy, health, transportation, uh, the built environment, agriculture, fisheries, as well as looking at the issues of mitigation, adaptation. And we have a special chapter on education and outreach. How do we uh, keep people informed and make sure that we can provide information that doesn't feed into the polarized arguments that so many people have about climate change and what it means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a challenge. And I also think it's a challenge to try to talk about something that isn't going to affect us today or tomorrow, really. When you're talking about 50 years out or even 100 years out, that's farther away than most of us tend to focus. You know, we tend to be kind of day-to-day gratified Right, and that's, that's one reason why we try to include a full spectrum of time. We do try to look at the shorter term as well as the mid and longer term climate changes. And the fact that we have changes that are already occurring, at least in sea level rise for the southeast, helps to focus people on that. Now, the, the southeast has been called um, a warming hole, which is kind of a, a funny name. Most of the country has actually observed warming over the last 50 to 60 years, but the southeast has not seen much warming. The Midwest has not seen a whole lot of warming either. But all the projections show that we should expect warming to come fairly quickly in the next uh, three or four decades. Hmm. Now, will we see it in the next 10 years? I don't know. But I think we need to be getting ready for it. And that's, that's a challenge is to get people ready for it. The other thing that's happened a lot that people are very concerned about in the southeast is drought. In the last 12 years, we've had eight years or six years of drought. We had a drought in 2000. We had a drought in 2007 to 9, And we're still in drought in the Apalachicola, Chattahoochee, Flint River Basin in Georgia, Florida, and Alabama. And that drought has had some incredible impacts. Not so much in agriculture, but it's affected uh, a lot of communities. Uh, the wells have gone dry, and it has led, we think, to a collapse of the oyster industry in Florida. Wow. So, uh, it has had some pretty major impacts. We don't have solutions for all of them. We're trying to, to uh, figure out where to go next. Yeah. Uh, but I, as we look at these things that we see now, one of the challenges is, can we say that this is a result of climate change? Mm. Probably not. And one of the, the uh, questions is, well, if it's not a result of climate change, if it's just a, a result of natural variation, uh, well, how is changing climate going to affect the likelihood of this happening in the future? And that's, that's one of the challenges that we need to address because it looks like these drought events are going to become more frequent in the future, not less frequent. And mm. that's, that's what we can use to help mobilize people, to recognize that 
if we have trouble adapting to the drought that we have right now, how much worse is it going to be if it's warmer and we have more frequent droughts and we have more people who are competing for that water? Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I, I think that one way to get people's attention is to look at how these climatic changes affect the food on their plates. So when you said a collapse of the oyster industry in Florida, my eyebrows went up because I thought, wow, you know, that's what I remember. I went to undergraduate school in Tallahassee, and I remember the Apalachicola Seafood Festivals, and that was part of the food culture and the economy of that region. And if all of a sudden that disappears, and I think we saw that certainly around Katrina, where people, that's all they knew was the seafood and the fish industries and shrimp. And when that disappears, we lose not only the food that we love, but we lose professions and we lose the economic development that goes with that. So I think that the implications for climate change are really far-reaching, and it's really helpful for us to think about all of them. One of the issues that you have mentioned on your bio is that your your interest in biodiversity, and it's one of mine as well, and how climate change may be related to the loss of biodiversity. Yes. Well, most biodiversity that we've lost in the last couple of centuries has been because of human activity. Mm. Humans converting forests into farms and plowing up areas and building houses and paving over areas, natural areas. People overfishing in the oceans. And there's been a... Human activity has had a great impact on biodiversity already. Now, as we look to the future, how climate change is going to affect biodiversity, there are a lot of question marks. But if one of the topics that we have a couple of researchers working on right now are um, related to conservation easements. A conservation easement is essentially a, a bit of land that's been designated in order to preserve an environment for certain species that we have found to be important species for the region. Now, what happens if the climate changes and the ecological zone no longer matches that conservation easement? What do we do? Do we move the easement? Can we move the easement? And It's kind of a, an interesting challenge because we, we not only need an easement that's an island, what I think we need and what a lot of people are talking about are easements that provide migration corridors, not just for animals, but for ecosystems. Mm. And it's it's a, a real concern. as we, we see some changes already. There are black mangroves moving up into the panhandle, which no longer used to grow in the panhandle. So we see a change of the, the coastal plant communities. It's already occurring. Mm-hmm. And, um it's likely going to continue as uh, the changes continue, both sea level rise and warming, which we do anticipate to happen in the southeast. Well, Dr. Ingram, I want to thank you very much for being my guest and raising some of these issues that we all need to be talking about and working on together. And you recommended a website, that's agroclimate.org, for farmers and educators and people who want to learn a little bit more about these relationships. And to our listeners, I want to let them know that we've been speaking with Dr. Keith Ingram. He is the coordinator of the Southeast Climate Consortium. He's also on faculty at the University of Florida in the Department of Agriculture 
agricultural and biological engineering, and he has an agronomy background. I want to remind our listeners and thank them for joining us that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri, where we suffered a drought last year, and hopefully we'll see brighter days ahead. But thank you, Dr. Ingram, for being my guest, and thank you, listeners, for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you.